0: Last year, during staff attack, our staff planning week, uh, there was this tremendous storm, terrifying storm overnight. Uh, we were staying at a friend's place uh, near Lake Macquarie, and the rain was pelting down, thunder and lightning. There was a gale blowing. Uh, when we woke up in the morning, we looked out. We were right on the lake, and we looked out to the marina where all the boats were, and right in front of the house, just out a bit, uh, there was... Uh, the houseboat that was there the day before had tipped over at about 45 degrees. Uh, and the house part of the boat was clearly submerged and it was going down. About an hour later we took a morning tea break and we looked out and all you could see was a flat line. At first we thought uh, it must have tipped right over and uh, be upside down. But then we happened to glance down downstream. And lo and behold, there was the top part of the house, the house on the houseboat. It was floating away uh, down down the lake uh, while the bottom of the boat had righted itself and it was just basically a platform. Uh, but the house was floating away, presumably at the sea where I guess it was going to be smashed to pieces. We're beginning today looking at this incredible part of the Bible the letter to the Hebrews, a book which will challenge you, uh, which will give you strength and nourishment in all sorts of ways, but a book that more than anything else is about going on as a Christian, persevering and not drifting away like the top of that houseboat. Now, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, except that it was someone connected to Timothy. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, 23, you can read about that. So he's presumably one of Paul's apostolic bands somehow, but uh, some people have speculated it might have been Barnabas that wrote this, uh, the person who our church is named after, St Barnabas, but that's just a guess. It could have been Sosthenes, it could have been someone we don't know. But what's clear from this letter is that he knows his hearers intimately And he's deeply, deeply concerned for them and deeply concerned that they're drifting away from Christianity. We know that they were Jews who had converted to Christianity. They'd accepted that Jesus was the Messiah that the Old Testament had promised and and they'd embraced him fully. But now some years later, they were having serious second thoughts about it all and they were on the verge of deliberately turning off track they were on the verge of turning away from Jesus and turning back to Judaism from which they had come, just drifting away. Now, I don't know if you ever felt discouraged about being a Christian. I don't know if there have been times and circumstances when you felt like packing it all in. Uh, if you think back to your time maybe in youth fellowship, if you grew up through there or Sunday school, or, or maybe back just over the last few years of, of church and church family life, you could probably think of people who at one time or another seem to be such strong believers, strong Christians, but who now show no connection, no sign that they, they believe in Christ or want anything to do with him or you know, no sign that they're attempting to serve God. How was it that they turned away from Jesus? Why did they? In some cases, I presume it was sin and the temptation to sin that kind of took them away. Something was just more intriguing, uh, and they knew that they couldn't have both. In other cases, it might have just been the things that were right in front of their eyes that just took their attention away. The, the things of life, the, the the circumstances they're in, the financial pressures and mortgages and jobs just occupied their horizons, and so they lost focus. Uh, for others, it's shame, I imagine, uh, the embarrassment and maybe even fear of of what might happen to us if if we're known as Christians. Uh, persecution, opposition, dislike, personal attacks—maybe worse—that many Christians over the world uh, face terrible consequences when they stand up for Christ. And and as a result, some unfortunately have fallen away, drifted away. The people. Hebrews is written to were facing all those same things themselves and we'll see that as we work our way through the book. And and they were on the verge of making this decision to, to pack in their faith in Jesus altogether and just go back to Judaism which was so much more socially acceptable, there's no shame in that uh it was much more entrenched in society uh it meant that friends and family would embrace them once again who had turned on them uh and, and in one sense, Judaism, with its temples and the land of Israel and uh the priests it was just so much more visible tangible you know interesting and and what's more they they knew that Judaism had been given by God himself, so Why wouldn't you want to go back to that when it had so much going for it? But the writer sees that there's a terrible danger in it. And so again and again, the writer appeals to his readers not to shrink back, to take care lest there be in them an unbelieving heart, to strive to enter the future world that God has in store for his people, to hold fast, not to enter into disobedience, to hold fast to their confidence, to hold to their original confidence, To have the full assurance of faith. These are the terms that he uses through the book. Have those until the end. And you can see it in the key verse of today's passage in our reading where we're given the first indication of our writer's concern for his readers. First time it turns up in chapter one, sorry, chapter two and verse one. See what he says there in the first verse of the second chapter? For this reason we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. To drift away is to slide, to slip away from. You're sleeping in a houseboat and there's a storm and, and the bottom half is swept off, uh, the top half swept off the bottom half of the boat and you, you, you end up drifting away down towards the sea lands. Uh, you're playing with a ball on the beach, uh, the tide's running out, the ball ends up in the water and, and it, it drifts away. You're not paying attention when you're lying on your surfboard or in your kayak out at sea and there's a, there's a rip current and, and you drift. You can't help it. It, it can be sudden and swift, uh, it can be slow and imperceptible, but either way, to drift away puts you in grave peril. It's not where you need to be. And so what do you need so that you will not drift away, that you will not drift away from Jesus? What what could God say to us so that we will not be distracted by the world and not give up in the Christian race and and certainly not deny Jesus when the opposition of the world gets harder, when the, the other things that glitter and shine seem so bright and tempting? Well, our key verse gives us the answer. How will you not drift away? The answer, we must pay attention all the more so that we will not drift away. Pay attention. Listen up. Give heed to. And pay attention all the more. That is to give A plus attention to. Not like most of us in our school days uh, who gave only maybe barely enough attention to the teachers or to do our homework that we could just... Scrape through in the end pay careful attention a plus attention pay attention to what though he says pay attention to the message we have heard that is the message about jesus the gospel message why is it so important why does it matter whether we pay so much careful attention and not drift away well the writer gives us two basic reasons and that's covered here one because of who jesus is And secondly, because of what's at stake, because of who Jesus is and because of what's at stake. And so firstly, we should pay more careful attention because of who Jesus is. You might have noticed that the book of Hebrews starts in a really strange kind of way, just kind of launches. It's it's not like a normal letter that you'd write or even a normal letter for the Bible where there's there's no from who and to who uh, at the top like we would write. He just gets straight into it. It's more like an urgent email that you might get from the boss when it really matters and there are no pleasantries. Just, just do this. But you get to our key uh, verse in chapter 2 and verse 1, and notice it starts, for this reason, right? Because of what I've said before, what I've said in the first chapter, for this reason You need to pay attention. So what is it that he's just said? What is the urgent thing that he's just launched straight into? Well, he's been speaking from verse 1 about Jesus and how he... Hands down, beats anything else that Judaism has ever brought, and and if if it beats Judaism, it beats everything else in the world. And so there's not there's something that's better than Judaism here that's now you know comparable or better than Jesus. No, if Jesus beats that, it beats everything because Judaism was the religion that God gave. And so whatever great things that Judaism offered, Jesus is greater. And so look at the things he says in that first chapter. Who is Jesus? Well. First of all, he's God's final word. And so that's verses one and two. He says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Yes, the Israelites were greatly blessed to have God speak to them. And God did that in all kinds of ways over a long period of time, in different occasions. Sometimes it was through human messages like the prophets. Sometimes it was in strange, bizarre, even supernatural ways. Uh, he spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through a donkey at one point. Uh, on another occasion, he spoke by sending a disembodied hand to write a message on the wall. That's in Daniel. Uh, you can read that in Daniel chapter 5. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, the law of Israel, the, the law of Moses, the thing that kind of ba- they based everything on the, in the first five books of the Bible and the Ten Commandments and all those things, they were given, we're told, by angels, something obviously otherworldly and amazing. And the author's not denying that. he says that's true. but now he says God has given us a greater word greater than even that word that was spoken by angels, an ultimate communication, a final way of knowing him, one which the angels and the prophets, they all spoke about and look forward to. But he says in verse two, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. That is, there's a finality to the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. In the past, Lots of messages, lots of different times, lots of different ways, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But now God has spoken by his son and it it puts an end to the communication. Now that's not to say that the Old Testament is in any way obsolete or redundant or irrelevant. And again and again, right through this book, the writer is going to quote the Old Testament as God's words, as God says to you, as the Holy Spirit says to you, and he will quote various parts of the Old Testament. But it's always as a foreshadowing of Jesus and who Jesus is in reality. The Old Testament was always pointing towards Jesus, who is the fullness, the realisation of God's revealing himself. See, how is it that you know someone? How do you know me, if we've met at all? How do you know anything about me? Well, there's some things you can tell Just by looking at me, Uh, you know, you can tell just by the screen, I assume that I probably like my food. But it it may be that I just have a huge stomach ulcer instead that's causing me uh, to look like this. Or or maybe it could be that I've got a pillow shoved up my top because, you know, somehow I think that's fashionable. (laughs) You, You might have a crack at guessing my age. But if you want to know me, then I have to reveal myself to you. I've got to tell you about me. And Hebrews is telling us that God has completely and fully communicated, revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And over the next couple of verses, next two verses, he gives us this epic, majestic view of the son of Jesus, a vast scope of God's ultimate revelation and why it is that Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation from God. Why you can't have better or more. Uh, a, a revelation which, and, and, and this grand scope of things, which, which he gives as seven descriptions of the son of Jesus. Seven ways that Jesus is described. And, and notice he's not arguing for them. He's just kind of whacking them out there and he will argue for some of them later on. But firstly, God has appointed Jesus as heir of all things. That's the first of the seven things. And being the heir means that everything belongs to him. Jesus owns it all. You, me, our possessions, our minds, our bodies. We exist for Jesus. The universe belongs to Jesus. It's all his. He is the heir of all things. Secondly, it tells us that he is the creator through whom God made the universe the reason that everything belongs to Jesus is because he has the right of ownership. You invent something, you've got the rights to it. You create something, you build something, you get to decide what happens to it, whether it ought to be you know, discarded and destroyed because you know, I can do a better job or whether you're going to use it, sell it, whatever you're going to happen to do, you get to decide. Jesus is the owner of all things, he's the creator of all things and thirdly, he's described as the radiance of God's glory. If you want to see how glorious God truly is, if you want to taste and see that the Lord is good, if you want to experience all the fullness of God, if you want to know what it's deep down like to be in the presence of God, if you want to know what God's majestic, glorious, infinite, heavenly nature is like, then look to Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. Fourthly, he's the exact representation we're told of God's being. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Another translation has it: Children sometimes bear resemblance to their parents, don't they? Yeah, you know, he's a spitting image of his dad. He's a chip off the old block. They they look like them in some ways. You can say, well, he's got you know mum's eyes or dad's eyes. They they act a bit like them. They may have the same sense of humour or they might have completely rejected it like my children. Uh, people say that, that Sarah looks a lot like me, only cute. Uh, I, I wonder what they mean by that. But you know what? Jesus the Son is not just like his Father God a bit. He doesn't just remind us somewhat of God or bear some kind of resemblance to God He is the exact representation of his nature, the perfect expression of who God is. He is in every way exactly like God, his Father, because he is one with God, one nature. If you know him, you know God. And you can see that in the fifth thing we're told about the Son, about Jesus, the fifth majestic thing. That is, he sustains all things, by his powerful word. Or more literally, he sustains everything by the word of his power. Jesus, the man Jesus, even now, right at this moment, sustains the entire universe and he does it by speaking, by the word of his power, just by speaking. It's that effortless for him. You know that ancient Greek myth about Atlas, the demigod, he got tricked into carrying the world on his shoulders anyway it's a complicated story really muscly guy you see pictures of the statues of the globe on his shoulders and 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 he's there he's straining under the burden of the world that's on his shoulders jesus isn't straining he's sustaining the world like like we might hold a feather in our hand and he's not just holding the world up he's holding the universe up that's that's the power we're talking about He's sustaining all things. At the end of verse three, the sixth thing we're told about Jesus is that he is the saviour of sinners. That he provided purification for sins. You know, that Jesus Christ is our perfect sacrifice, our perfect priest. He does away with us. In Hebrews is going to talk a lot more about that as it goes on. And again, in, in that way, he's exactly like God. Only God would do that. Because that's what God is like. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son. It's the love of the Father that Jesus purifies us from sin by dying on the cross to pay our debt, washing away our sins as if we'd never done them, buying freedom and forgiveness for us who've gone astray. Jesus provided the purification for us that could not come in any other way. He couldn't even come through the sacrifices of Israel that God had set up. And lastly, seventh, Jesus, he says, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The one who became one of us, who knows exactly what it's like to be human, the one who died for us on the cross to purify us from our sins, rose again and now he rules the universe at God's right hand for our good. And all of those characteristics about Jesus, all those things about him, mean that he is a better, fuller, and final revelation from God. That is why he is God's final word. And if he is God's final word, pay attention. Pay careful attention. Give him a plus attention. Give him your full attention. Here is God. Speaking to you, but Hebrews goes on. See, Jesus is not just a better word from God, the final word. He's superior to other things that the the Jews and Hebrews valued as well. He's he's superior to the angels, for instance. And there's going to be more throughout the letter. But but he's superior to the angels. Now, you or mine might not be tempted to walk away from Jesus for the sake of angels. But the Hebrews obviously were, and there are some today. In fact, the the worship of angels and talking to your angels becoming really, really popular, and all sorts of spiritualist movements are are trying to help people move away from Jesus. And so, you come and meet your guardian angel and all that kind of thing. But as you read about angels in the Old Testament, they were impressive. They were astonishing. They were powerful. You know, the cherubim guarding the way back into Eden with a flaming sword. The, the seraphim in Isaiah 6 with their six wings flying about, glorious. The angel of death who was able to destroy every firstborn in Egypt in Exodus 12. Or again, the angel of death destroying the whole Assyrian army, 180,000 men died that night in Isaiah 37. Impressive. Awesome. It was by the angels that the, the, the law was given. But you know What? Awesome as they are, they've got nothing on Jesus. And for the rest of chapter 1, the author goes into various Old Testament quotes, comparing what God says about angels, even as impressive as they are, to what he says about his son. And in every way, he proves the truth of his claim in verse 4, that so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay, so why is Jesus so superior to the angels? We know he's the final word of God, but superior to angels, why? Well, because he's got greater status. He's got a supreme status, that's in verses five and six. And he gives a combination of quotes from Psalm two, from two Samuel seven, from Deuteronomy 32, which would all be worth chasing up later. And you need to do the work this afternoon to see it later yourself. But but Psalm two ends up saying, kiss the son, lest he become angry." In other words, Bow down before him. Surrender to him. He's speaking to the kings and the rules of the world in the Psalms and he says surrender to the son. He is the one who is above you all. 2 Samuel 7 speaks of the great king David and of his position and place and, and then says I'll give to him, to David, uh, sorry, to David's son who's gonna come. I'm gonna be that, that guy's father. He will be my son and he's gonna rule forever. He's, He's going to have status as the royal king, as God's king. And Deuteronomy 32 speaks of the unique role of the only God, unrivaled, unchallenged by any other idol or philosophy. How do the angels stack up to that? Well, verse 6, let all the angels worship him. This son is so far above the angel's, that even they have to bow before him and worship, not the other way around. He's superior to them in status. He's superior to them in his reign, which is everlasting. That's verses uh, 7 to 9. The angels, they don't rule anything. They might seem impressive. They may be flaming have swords, but they're, they're only just servants. Whereas to the Son of God, he says... Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Now that's a quote from Psalm 45, which which is a royal song about this glorious future, uh, glorious future figure that God is sending, who is the King. But the King is someone separate of God, but it's also God Himself who who then reigns in justice and righteousness and is above everyone else, an eternal rule, never ending. It, it, it's not like. He's ever going to vacate the throne he's not going to die in favor of someone else and an angel will assume his place and it's a reign that's over everyone and everything including his enemies so verse 13 "To, to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool what's a footstool you think about it a footstool is something at the end of the day you come home, you're tired, you crash down the sofa and you just want to kick back and enjoy binge-watching Netflix or put on your favourite Andre Ryu DVD or whatever floats your boat, but you put your feet up, right? You pull the recliner back or you pull out the ottoman and you whack your feet on it. It's a footstool, footstool. But just look at verse 13. He's quoting Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand, says God to this figure, to his son, until I make your enemies. Every individual, every philosophy, every nation, everything that has stood against the Lord Jesus, I'm going to make it all a footstool to you, King Jesus. You cannot hope to stand against Jesus. You. You cannot hope to stand without Jesus. No one can. Every, everything is at stake. Right? So it's not just who, who Jesus is, but, but what's at stake? Life's at stake. The world to come is at stake. You see, chapter 2, verse 5, one verse beyond what we read in our reading, he says we're talking about the world to come chapter three he talks about you who who are recipients of the eternal kingdom. you everything's at stake it really matters who Jesus is and and his reign and that he will subjugate everything and the world to come and and so we've got to pay careful attention. A plus attention, undivided attention and pay attention to him because this world is his and so is the next. Pay attention because he is God's final word, because he's superior in every way to even the most glorious of beings who've ever existed and interacted with humanity. And and pay attention because he's going to reign forever. He's God's king now and forever, the judge, the ruler, supreme, Now there are all sorts of implications that that we could draw out, and that Hebrews is going to draw out for us over the coming weeks. Implications about the supremacy of Christ and and how He reveals God perfectly. But I just want to give, finish by giving you three three implications, three that Hebrews itself draws out. First one's confidence. It this should give us awesome confidence, supreme confidence, confidence that we really do know God because Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. There's no ifs or buts or ands, no no gray areas, no uncertainty, because Jesus has revealed God and fully revealed him, and we can trust him. We can have certainty, we can know for sure, because God has spoken to us in his perfect word. God has spoken to us in his son. Hebrews 6 is going to go and say, uh, we have this hope as an anchor, for the soul firm and secure chapter 10 is going to say we have confidence to enter into god's holy place so the throne room of god we are connected because of jesus god has given us his promise and he has sworn by his word that he will save us and so certainly confidence people will accuse us of arrogance it's not arrogance it's humble trust and confidence that god is good for his word so that's the first implication confidence Second one, there's also joy. There's joy that flows from that confidence. He says, let your heart be filled with a warm, deep glow of gladness, a deep, rich contentment of peace. Our God is there and he's not silent. He hasn't left us on our own. He speaks to us. Rejoice. And God hasn't given us a half-hearted, vague, mysterious revelation. He hasn't given us a code that we need to crack and that only the the biggest brains can figure out if if they're really smart. Uh, He's given us clearly in radiant glory his son, the king, the saviour. So rejoice in your knowledge of him. But the third implication I want to draw out is the one that the writer to the Hebrews is hammering home for the majority of the letter. We've got to pay careful attention. God has spoken, so listen to him. Listen up good. That's what Hebrews is saying. You've got to pay attention to Jesus. Why? So that we will not drift away. There are all sorts of pressures in life which will tempt you into giving up on Jesus. Oh, it won't normally be straight away or suddenly, you know. Not many people fall away overnight, right? You know, maybe there's, there's a sudden storm so big that the houseboat that you're in comes off the bottom of the boat and drifts away and gets smashed to pieces. But normally speak, normally, you know, the usual way it happens is a slow process, uh, a series of little steps, just one small decision after another. That's the usual way that someone just drifts away. So what's going to keep us going? What's going to give us confidence and hope and true faith in those times, those times of temptation, those times when we're just distracted by all the, the anxieties of life and the things that are just happening all around us and all the invitations we're getting? What's going to, what's going to maintain us when when there's pressure on and opposition and hatred and things are happening to us? When we've when been threatened with things? What will keep us going? Paying attention to Jesus, paying careful attention to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him, fix your eyes on him, listen to him, know who he is, know what he is, where he sits, know what he's done to save you. Know that he is right now ruling and sustaining this world. Know that even his enemies, as strong as they might be, and they might be your enemies too, they're going to be but his footstool right, that he's going to take his ease and put his feet up on. That's paying attention. That's what will keep us strong in him. So pay attention to him so that we will not drift away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome letter. And we thank you that Jesus is God's your final word to us, ultimate revelation of you, the exact imprint of your being the radiance of your glory the son who gives us intimate knowledge of our heavenly father and not just so that we might fear and cower because of our sin but he's provided purification for our sin and he has taken up life again and promises an eternity because he reigns forever and he's powerful over all help us not to be distracted please protect us from temptation when we face those temptations Help us to say, no, it's not worth it because Jesus is amazing. He's the only one who is worth it. When we're distracted and our attention's blocked by things around us, help us to, to remember whose we are, remember who the King is, and to remember that everything is for His purpose and, and to put our lives in Your hands and to, to not walk away. And we pray you please when there's opposition that we would stand up, that we would stand up and be counted, that we would not be afraid. we put our confidence in you knowing that even if the world should take our life that we're safe in you the one who gives eternal life and so father give us a boldness and a courage to stand for you in everything in every way and help us to be like the writer to the hebrews desperate for others to make it too we pray when we see our brothers and sisters in christ struggling along and tempted to give up and drift away that we might be there urging them, encouraging them, pushing them forward. When we see those outside of the kingdom and the destiny that they are enemies who are going to become a footstool, help us to plead with them and show them this glorious son, the one who makes all the difference, the one you have given, your final word, Jesus. And we pray that we'd have the joy of seeing them come to life. And so give us confidence, give us great joy in your promises uh, and help us to pay attention and never drift away. Amen.